You may be seated and let's pray together. Firm foundation, the rock on which we stand, we come before you, we sing songs of your goodness, and now we open your word. As we do, Lord Christ, give us new sights of your, the foundation on which we stand and the goodness that you offer. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and honoring to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. If you don't know me or haven't met me yet, I'm Gail Dornbos. I'm one of the new theology professors here on campus. And I can't tell you how much of a delight and excitement it is to be with you this morning as we draw the Genesis jo Joseph story to a close. I mean, can you believe that next week is the last chapel of the semester? It feels like we blinked and April came. But what an incredible story we have been following. It's the story of Joseph, who was sold as a slave by his brothers, who rises to power in Egypt only to be unjustly thrown into prison, then rises to power again because of his ability to interpret dreams, who saves the lives of many through administrating a divinely inspired food program amidst a famine. It's the story of Joseph's brothers, who, in contemporary language, although it sounds harsh, is no less true, traffics their brother to Egypt, who are then saved from starvation from that very same brother when they bow to him, and then are restored to relationship when he does not pay them back as they deserve. It's the story of a father and his sons. It's the story of the beauty and mystery of God's redemption and the surprising ways that he weaves stories in which restoration reigns over retribution and shattered lives are gathered into wholeness again. It's a story that seems to be welling to a phenomenal and awesome conclusion, all tied into a nice little providential bow in Genesis 50, where Joseph comforts his brothers who have sold him into slavery by saying to them, you intended harm to me, but God intended it to for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. But between Genesis 47, which we read last week, where the people are flourishing in the land, and Genesis 50, where the brothers finally reconcile with one another, we read this, which is our text for the morning. So turn with me to Genesis 49. We'll look at verses 1 through, four, one through 7. You can follow them up there, or in your Bibles, there's some text issues, so the translations might be different. I'm reading from the NIV. It says this, Then Joseph, who was on his deathbed at that time, called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up into your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are their weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council, let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob, and disperse them in Israel. 
And then Jacob continues, turning one by one to his sons, telling of the days to come, of their future. And at the end of his speech, the narrator describes these words that he's given as blessings. And then it hits us. A future of diminishment, scattering, a description of his sons as cruel. I thought that the Joseph story was about God weaving stories of redemption together, but this seems the opposite. I mean, imagine Reuben's post if prehistoric Instagram existed. Just left dad's bedside, feeling a little turbulent today, told I will suffer and receive no inheritance, headed out to the boat to process, hashtag blessed. It really feels like at this point, the good story bus hits the bad news cow. Dreams aren't supposed to end this way, are they? With this kind of reality? How is this a part of the incredible story we've been tracing? I've been asking myself that question for a long time, and if I'm honest, I wish that I paid a little bit more attention when I said yes to speaking in chapel and looked at the text assignments. I thought, cool, it's the end of Genesis. We're going to tell a really nice story of providence, all tied up in this neat little bow. I'm a theologian. I'd love to talk on providence. That's my jam. And then I opened it to this text. So here we go. <laughs> but in reality, there is good news in this text. If we spend some time with this text, roll up our sleeves and dive in, we'll find that this text not only belongs here, but actually draws us into a deeper and better story, a more incredible hope, a more true reality, the one that really does have the power to give rest to all of our wounded and weary souls this morning. However, to get there will take a little bit of work, because the rest that this story offers requires us looking truthfully and honestly at the pain, anguish, and sorrow in the text, and the how it reveals that and God's response to it. It, spends, it requires us to spend some time in the dark in order to see the light. And fair warning, the dark that this text shows is really dark but it's where the text leads us, and it's so that's where we will follow. So we're going to dive back into the text, and as we look at the text, what we need to realize is that Jacob's words to his sons are meant to link us back to other places in Genesis. So we're going to follow some of those links. The first link that we get is in verses 3 and 4, where we get the simple link to establishing Reuben as the firstborn son. Now, to us, that might not seem super important, but in that culture, as the firstborn son of Jacob, Reuben is his rightful heir. He would receive everything that his father had, and he would take the place of Jacob when he passed away, taking charge of the family's economic well-being and being responsible for taking care of the poor and the marginalized. Sorry to the secondborns, also to all the females here. Firstborn by God at all. But... Having established Reuben's first order and his birth order, the next words that we see is that he defiles his father's bed, linking us to another story which is recorded in Genesis 35, verse 22. And fair warning, this is a horrible story. Even though it's short, it's disturbing. For in Genesis 35:22, Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, who's Jacob's concubine. We're going to have to bracket out the discussion on why Jacob has two wives and two concubines for another day to stay focused on Reuben. 
He sleeps with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And what he does there is in a horrific grab of power, he forsakes his responsibility to take care of those within his household. He tries to take what his father has. And Reuben's actions throughout the rest of the Joseph narrative don't get any better. Even in the moments that seem on the surface to be redemptive, the narrator shows us that two other motives constantly lurk behind Reuben's actions. A search for favor and a grasp for power. He wants to be liked and he wants to be in control and it shows itself all over the narrative. Reuben's consequence? He loses what was already his by birth. The power of being the firstborn. The favor that was given to him because of being the oldest. In his grasping, in his desire for control, in his efforts to be liked, he brings destruction to himself and devastation to others throughout the story, to Bilhah, to Joseph, to Jacob, to the whole family. And that's where Jacob's words to Reuben end. So we move to the next two, Simeon and Levi, the next two oldest brothers who, by the cultural standards, might now be expecting that the inheritance will be theirs. However, we quickly get a link back to other stories in Genesis. In the words, their swords are weapons of violence. And again, fair warning, the story doesn't get better with them. Because this links us back to Genesis 34, where Simeon and Levi seek revenge on the prince of Shechem after he takes advantage of their sister Dinah by first tricking and then killing not just the prince, but every man in Shechem and plundering it, leaving the women and children in Shechem destitute. In Genesis 34 and in Jacob's judgments here, what's clear is that what happened to Dinah is abhorrent and demands justice. But it's also clear that Simeon and Levi do not carry it out. In fact, they have no idea what justice would mean. Instead, they seek retribution on their own terms, spreading death and destruction to innocent people. And throughout the rest of the story, it's no better. Remember, these are the brothers that did literally sell their brother into slavery to no protest. Their consequence, they are not to be trusted to give counsel. They do not receive any of Jacob's wealth. In fact, the promise that they receive is that their heirs will be scattered and left without a proper home. And that's where Jacob ends his words to Simeon and Levi. Drawing back and seeing what's going on here, what we see in these three sons and the links to their stories is links to the kinds of horrific stories that we find in Genesis. These are the stories that the Bible contains, but in no way condones. These are the stories that demonstrate the kind of death, disorder, and destruction that human beings can bring to one another. It's a constant theme throughout Genesis. Human beings, you and me, can cause a wake of chaos and destruction behind us. Genesis is absolutely, and if sometimes, if I'm honest, feels a little too real to me about the condition of what it's like to live outside of Eden. These stories in Genesis strike us because they show us that sin and its destruction is real. Evil brings real pain and suffering and sorrow. Its consequences come to real people. These stories in Genesis strike us they're not something that we can turn our heads away and ignore. And we are meant in them to find ourselves horrified, filled with sorrow, holy anger, 
as we read about all of these consequences that sin has brought. But we're also let them, let, meant to let them strike us with a holy conviction that brings us to ask ourselves whether we or our world, for all of our ability to put on clean faces and nice outsides, doesn't also bear some of the similarities to the world that we find in Genesis. To be clear, the stories that we read of Simeon, Levi, and Reuben are distinct, but can't we also find in their motives some echoes of ourselves? How many of us would also say that we are control freaks? I realized I was one during COVID. How many of us also might say that we are people pleasers, seeking to do things not for the sake of others, but so that we're liked? Because who doesn't like to be liked? Don't we also seek security too? Don't we also experience the devastation and chaos of sin in our own lives and communities? I mean, think about it. The families that you're not looking going, not forward to looking going to live with this summer because of the pain and consequences and devastation of wounds that still exist between you. Roommate strife that's plagued your year that you're really excited is about to be done. Relationships on this campus destroyed by gossip or hurtful words or really serious stories that keep coming up in the news about violence and sexual abuse, which if we spent maybe a little bit of time, we might find here too. We, like the characters in Genesis, are chaos creators who are also destroyed by chaos. Our specific actions might be different than Reuben, Levi, and Simeon, but if we're honest with ourselves, we can find that the motives that drove them to their destructive ends are pretty close at hand. And we certainly know a world in which pain, death, and destruction are ever-present companions. We know what dead-end stories look like. I told you it was going to be dark first. Are you feeling it yet? The sorrow, the sadness, what feels like a dead end, this doesn't feel like good news yet. But the story's not done. So let's continue reading in Genesis 49, where Jacob says this to Judah. He says this, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's come, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until him to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest vine. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now by this point in the story, if we're following the pattern of what Jacob has been doing, we expect, Joseph, or we expect Judah's blessing to link us back to something in the narrative. But we don't find any link back here at all. Even though Judah's story is well worth looking into, there's no reference back. Instead, as Jacob gives this blessing, it's a push to compel us to try to link forward. And to look forward to someone who will come from Judah, and if we had time to go into each of the images, we could see this more clearly, but to go and look at from the line, for someone who will come from the line from Judah, 
who will respond directly to the chaos and destruction that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi brought. Someone who is the opposite of their actions. We are to look for someone whose anger is righteous, whose justice is true, whose assent to rule is not gained through power or selfish grabs or selfish gains, but through self-giving humility. Someone who will rule with justice and bring flourishing and delight. That's what the rather odd-to-us metaphor about the donkey and wine are all about. Ancient metaphors for richness and flourishing. <laughs> we might not use them, but it's kind of fun to find them. Who will put, we are look to look for someone to who, who will put the world to right. A place in which sin, death, and destruction will be destroyed. We are compelled to look forward. And when we do, especially standing where we are, as we look forward, we see the line that goes straight from Judah to David to Christ. For Christ comes from the house and line of Judah, and Christ is the promised one to whom the scepter belongs, and he will rule the nations. As you look at the text again, don't you hear the echoes of Christ ringing through it? The one who comes to us riding on a donkey, the one whose first miracle is turning water into wine, the one who crushes the head of the serpent, our true enemy, and the one who ascends and is seated on the throne, king over all creation. He does not obtain his power by might, his favor by seeking control, but by willingly giving himself up on the cross where God's justice and mercy meet, so that in his resurrection, death and darkness are defeated, the curse undone, and wounds healed. For as we read in the book of Revelation, the Lion of Judah is the Lamb who was slain. This is the promise that lies at the heart of Jacob's blessing to Judah. And this is why this text belongs here. Because it brings us into a deeper, a better story, a more incredible hope, a truer reality, one that really has the power this morning to give rest to our weary and wounded souls. Because God responds to darkness to bring light. Judah's blessing comes as an answer to the darkness, pain, and weariness, and wounding in the stories that we read in Genesis, and it's a response that our soul desperately needs. We need to know a God who digs in, a God who gives a promise to deal with everything, who steps into dead stories and dead ends and says, I will remake them, I will continue my promises, I will drive the story forward. Evil and destruction, they do not get the last word. Hope, faithfulness, and love do. That's why this text is here. It's not an obstacle on our way to a happy ending. Rather, it's seeing who God is, the God of the good story, a story that weaves redemption. It's a story that matches the story of Joseph, but promises that will continue long beyond his death. It's a story that gives us hope that can face any darkness in ourselves or in our other lives because it shows that even Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have hope in this story. Did you catch how? At the beginning of the passage, it says that the brothers of Judah will bow to him. Here's the good news. Those creators of chaos, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, already know how to bow to one of their brothers. They bowed to Joseph to save them from starvation, 
and this text calls them to bow to the one from whom Judah will come to bring salvation. Hope is not lost in the midst of darkness. This text makes it clear that God is the kind of God who makes and keeps his promises, not by ignoring it, but by facing it dead on. And it is something that the people of Israel will need as they are about to go into another gap between dream and reality. They're about to enter 400 years of slavery. They need a promise that keeps them through that. They need a promise that keeps the story going. We need it too, because it's a text that God gives us as we live in our own gap. The gap between Christ's coming and his return. In that gap, we need a story that doesn't gloss over the reality of sin, death, and destruction in our own lives. We need a story that goes deeper and fills us more than cliched hopes. We need this text because it's so easy in gaps to doubt and wonder, is God faithful? Here's another way to look at it. In his book, The Lion and the Lamb, Brennan Manning tells the story of an old religious leader who used to say that he discovered the meaning of love from a drunken peasant, noting, entering the taver a tavern in the Polish countryside, he saw two peasants, Ivan and Peter, at the table, both gloriously in their cups, each protesting how much he loved the other. When Ivan said to Peter, Peter, tell me what hurts me, bleary-eyed, Peter looked at Ivan. How do I know what hurts you? Ivan answer, Ivan's answer was swift. If you don't know what hurts me, how can you say that you love me? This text, beyond a shadow of a doubt, shows that God loves us, for he knows the depths of our pain and the reality of our sin. He knows the weariness that you carry into this room this morning. He knows. He knows the kinds of stories that you carry into this space, ones that feel like disruption any more, any, more than anything else, where the good news stories of your lives have hit the bad news cows of pain, exhaustion, anxiety, weariness, wounds, being a wounder of others. And he says to you, I know. I know the reality of that darkness, but it is not the last word. You will not be left wounded and weary. Open this text again and see that this somewhat disruptive text at the end of Joseph's story reminds us of the God who is, who keeps his promises, whose faithfulness drives the story forward. Look at this text now on this side of the cross and resurrection as we wait in the gap for Christ to come again and find rest in the hope that he who is promised is faithful. That he comes to us this morning, he says, I know, I love, I've come, I've done something about it. Bow and worship at my feet and find restoration and redemption. Wait with me in this gap, for I will make all things new. As it was before, so I say to you now, I am faithful, I will make, and I will keep my promises. And as you wait here in this time, when darkness seems so real sometimes and the weariness feels so present, we can look at this text and say that when God looks at the darkness, his final answer is no. That is not the end of my story. And so it will not be the end of yours.
Let's pray. Lord Christ, what an astonishing promise you give us that your faithfulness is enough and that we can come to you when we are wounded and weary, sick and sore, and find rest at your feet. We thank you for strange texts that challenge us, but show us your beauty in the end. In your name we pray, amen.